You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hi guys, Santosh here, your pediatric infectious diseases doc and researcher. Hey, and it's Dr. Ward, I'm the ER doc. This week, we're starting a new segment, kind of, called <laughs> Around the World in 80 Plagues. <laughs> Yay! Yes. Many plagues, many continents. There's a lot of diseases that we here as doctors in the U.S. will probably never see, or at least see very rarely. Some of them we've already talked about, such as malaria and Zika. Some have made their way to the U.S. shores, such as Ebola and dengue. <laughs> but there are other diseases that really you only are going to learn about in a textbook unless you're living in that actual country. So Unless when we you're in the... Florida, which might qualify <laughs> yeah. as another. And <laughs> when we, and so we'll do these around the world in 80 plagues to kind of give you an introduction to what some of these diseases are, and hopefully we will continue eradicating them from the face of the earth. So this week we're going to go with one that at least one of us actually has experience with the infectious diseases doctor went to see an infection holy crap <laughs> <laughs> foiled again <laughs> it's the wrong catchphrase it's the wrong no i so yeah i went to a leper colony in india and this was all thanks to my trip with my buddy vladimir schwartz dr vladimir schwartz if you're listening hi and he's a very dear friend of mine, and he had recommended a long time ago that we go out with a program called 
called the Himalayan Health Exchange that runs an amazing program, and I've spoken about it before on this podcast, that takes you up into the Himalayas to take care of people. After we were done with that, we had a little bit of time, and so Vlad really wanted to see a unique disease that he wouldn't be able to encounter in his practice in the United States, and he's a neurologist, and he's fascinated by anything which will affect the nerves. So one of the most prevalent diseases which does affect the nerves, specifically the peripheral nerves, is leprosy. So Vladimir was able to contact a physician who had a clinic up in the hills, and this physician opened his doors and said, yes, please come on in and we will introduce you to our patients and you can walk around and see what we do here and we will discuss everything about the treatment, prevention, and eventually eradication of leprosy. Now, the interesting thing is that when we got there, we thought we would be seeing active cases of leprosy being treated. That's not what we saw at all. As with much of the world, leprosy is all but eradicated in northern India. And what they have up there in the colony is, unfortunately, those few people who were caught very late and have disfiguring scars from their illness. So the infection had taken parts of faces or limbs, and these people, because of that, were stigmatized, and they were cast out of society. And so they lived there as a home or just a kind of a big apartment complex where the doctors could kind of watch over them, do anything that they want to, but they of their own volition did not want to leave that area. The active cases of leprosy were actually taken care of by surveillance. And because treatment is so available now and the case load or the infection rate is so low, the doctors would actually just climb into a jeep with all of their medicine and the most handy doctor tool in the world to diagnose leprosy, which is a ballpoint pen. <laughs> we'll explain that in a bit. Oh, I was going to say an iPhone. Oh, no. <laughs> a ballpoint pen. That's all you need. And they would go out. They would treat the people in their home and do what's called directly observed therapy or DOT, which is where they'd watch the people take their meds, and then they'd come on back. So they actually hadn't had a new case of leprosy which needed treatment in the actual hospital in a very, very long time. But it was a very interesting experience, and more so than learning all about the infection and the illness, it was much more interesting to talk to the people about the stigma behind leprosy and why that stigma was still around. There are places actually, even throughout India, where there are people who are being employed who previously had leprosy and who have a lost limb or disfiguring scars, and they don't have any other place to work in society. But there are foundations that are being set up that said, no, we want you to come and work for us and have a life. So you don't have to just sit in an isolated colony just because of a scar. This colony, <clears throat> these people are not actually infectious. They don't have active cases of leprosy, right? It's just they have been disabled or disfigured by the disease. Right. They're not a public health threat. Concern. Exactly. Yeah, Concern. They, they're not being sequestered. Exactly. Oh. So they're not being kept away from everybody because they're an infection risk. They're being kept away kind of of their own volition because they don't know what to do with themselves in the outside world. And it's it's sad. But at the same time, we got to 
actually, you know, they were very sweet, a lot of them. They would let us touch and, and actually see what the lesions felt like, the scars, and, and talk to them about how, how they dealt with their disability, both from a social and a functional standpoint. I'm going to stick He's a big old squishy leper. <laughs> yes, you <Yeah>. are. <laughs> I'm going to say that uh, this is almost like an them. SNL skit. That That is the last thing, even though I know it's not infectious, if they have been fully treated, that is the last thing probably most people want to do is to touch no, a scar. Right, right. When you're a travel medicine doc, I think, and or if you're a traveling doc or anything like that, I think is the first thing you have to get over is any kind of ick factor and quickly separate what is rapidly infectious or communicable from something that just kind of looks gross because you're going to you're going to have to deal with both. Well, when Ward and I went to Nepal Santosh, we went hiking in the mountains and parahawking. You were like, "You know what I should do?" leper colony <laughs> so. I, good, kudos to you well, I packed, pure, yeah, I packed yeah. Purell and I touched nothing <laughs> <laughs> no I mean I, we were on medical mission anyway so I mean if I I actually was in a tent with a woman with active tuberculosis wearing my N95 mask praying that it would work I, said, I applaud you sometimes human contact and just just the sense that somebody cares is the yeah. best medicine Oh, I hope so. Uh, that and, you know, medicine. Sometimes amazing medicine is the best medicine. <laughs> That's a really great experience and one that other people may still have open to them if they go through Himalayan Health Exchange, Santosh? Well, uh, so this one was not part of the Himalayan Health Exchange per se, but the people who work for Himalayan Health Exchange know so much of the local healthcare groups, I should say, or the collegiality between all of them is really good. So if you want to experience any particular thing outside of the mission path that they're already on, they can set you up with pretty much anybody that you want to, all the way from trauma and emergency medicine to infectious disease to even biomedicine or sorry, biomedical engineering in remote sites where they get prostheses to people who would never be able to see the inside of a hospital. In the meantime, why don't we talk a little bit about leprosy now that we've had that introduction? In case people are unfamiliar with what it is, do you guys know what the origin of the word leprosy means? Or even how old leprosy is as a disease? <laughs> leprosy is an ancient, ancient disease. Yeah, it's got a very long history. I think it's in the Bible. No, I know it's in the Bible. You are spot on. And in fact, there's even a Hebrew word for leprosy, which, oh, do I want to try and pronounce it? <laughs> Come on, you have to draw back from your ancestry, Josh. And it is known as Zarat? Oh, yeah, I buy that. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. I was trying, yeah, so, and, I was trying to get And in fact, one of, the most famous, one of the most famously afflicted lepers, at least for some of his life, was Moses. Yes, absolutely. Was this when he was wandering through the desert? I think it was when he was married, and I don't know if it's because of that, yeah. <laughs> but it says both, both Moses and Miriam, in the King James translation of the Bible, right. both Moses and Miriam suffered from leprosy at some point in their lives, but it sounds like the Zarat, which is spelled T-Z-A-R-A-A-T, is not 
the same as what we traditionally think of as leprosy. It was a skin disease that could take many different forms and in particularly bad cases could manifest on somebody's clothing, belongings, and house in addition to the skin. So this was caused by sin. So it was part medical condition, part spiritual pathology, and there are two chapters two chapters of the book of Leviticus that are devoted to dealing with somebody who is afflicted with this condition. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So that is old. That This condition has been known to humankind yeah. as far as history goes. And that makes sense. Uh, both of the mycobacteria that we know so well. So this is a cousin to tuberculosis. Um, so mycobacterium tuberculosis and mycobacterium leprae are both ancient bacteria. I mean, these are old, old, old guys in the evolutionary history of bacterium. So- now, this does date back far. And it actually, before we even go to where the current strains that we know and love originated, do either of you know the etiology or the etymology of the word leprosy? Uh, I think I do, but only because of some well-placed show notes. Yeah, not before (laughs) this show. I did not know that. Yeah. (laughs) So it actually derives from the Latin word lepra, which means scaly, because those who are afflicted with leprosy often take on a very scaly type appearance to their skin in an attempt to destigmatize the disease and help people who are afflicted with it from not becoming such social outcasts, it was replaced with the term Hansen's disease after the German physician who first discovered the bacteria that cause it. And this is Gerhard Armauer Hansen. There it is. Hansen. So hot right now. Hansen. (laughs) (laughs) Who discovered the mycobacterium in 1873, and that was actually the very first bacteria to be identified as causing disease in humans. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was good. It was really important to take that fear away from people because, you know, not only was there that medical stigma that, oh, I'm going to catch this from you, which was recognized very early on, by the way, that this was a communicable thing, that if one person had it, they could pass it on to somebody else. But there was that stigma of, oh, you've been afflicted with this by some supernatural being, whether that's God or whatever it is. So, you know, that if you're coming near me with this, it's not just that I'm going to contract this, you know, wasting skin and flesh disease, but I'm also going to contract your sin by by proximity or contact. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, Santosh, that you mentioned you went to a leper colony in India for a couple reasons. The disease, as we know it today, is actually thought to have originated in India oh. and, and been transmitted around the world by Roman legionnaires. You know, all roads lead to Rome, but apparently <laughs> leprosy comes straight out of it. Right. And it was thought to be highly contagious because, you know, those legionnaires, they, they're filthy beggars. They go from port to port. <laughs> they got around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. They did. Now, it's because it was felt to be highly contagious, and we'll get into that a little bit later in the show. But people 
as always, there was a class divide, and if you were wealthy, you could just live at home in isolation, be that weird eccentric rich uncle right? Uh, who was never really seen. But people who were not wealthy enough to live at home were separated and segregated, sometimes voluntarily on their own, other times forcibly by their community, in what came to be called leprosaria or lazarets. Lazarets from the biblical Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Outside of these leprosaria, lepers really weren't safe. They were feared, they were ostracized, they were frequently in Middle Ages condemned to wander the roads wearing signs and ringing bells to warn healthy people of their approach. And because of this, leprosy came to be referred to as the living death. Not quite the zombies that we think of today. (laughs) Right. And often, its victims were treated as zombies, as if they had already died. Funeral services were conducted to declare those living with the disease dead to society, and relatives could claim their inheritance. Aww. Now, you may think to yourself, yeah, sure, but we've come so much further since then. That was, you know, Dark Ages England when all knowledge was hidden. Right. Nope. When do you suppose the last major lepros- leprosy columns really were functional and we were forcibly putting people into them? If you had to pick a decade. I want to say the Bush <laughs> years. Those were some weird years. I'm, I'm venturing a guess out here. <laughs> Wait, George W. or George H. George w? w. You know, those were some weird years. <laughs> I might not be right, but I'm going to venture a well, guess. It was Bush years. Yeah. No, no, no. What, so definitely it was here in the Western world. And we brought leprosy over here, and there were people put in leper colonies um, all the way up to the, I'd say the 1900s, maybe? 1900. Well, Santosh, by Price's Right rules, you are actually closer. Uh, This was in mid-1860s to 1893. Oh, well, I went over, though. A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit. But one of the biggest leper colonies and, in fact, rebellions that I found out about researching this episode took place in Hawaii, which previously I had only associated with methamphetamine <laughs> and, well, nothing really pleasant. You know, I, I hear Hawaii, I start thinking methamphetamine, yeah. I think abscesses, and now I think leprosy. Josh, you have a very odd uh, impression of Hawaii. <laughs> no, no, I think his his impression is quite grounded Under, and I accurate. Know. Actually, you're accurate. But that's, most, that's not what most people think of when they think Hawaii. Most people think sun, sand, and surf. I think leprosy and methamphetamine. <laughs> I did not know how ridiculous it was when you told me the story of someone trying to trade medical services for a chicken until I went to Hawaii and I saw that chickens are actually wild animals out there. And then they just roam around. It's like essentially me trying to pay you for services with a pigeon. No, I, I'll tell you that I learned about the leprosy colony on Kauai because of the Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, so after the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy in 1893, the newly formed American government increased its enforcement of the act to prevent the spread of leprosy, which had been started in 1865. And basically, a bunch of 
policemen led by Sheriff Stolza and a number of his policemen went into one of the largest villages that was infected in the Kalulu Valley to send all the leprosy victims to the leper colony in Kalupapa. Now, originally, the sheriff had gone down and said to everybody, listen, you know, we're going to let you bring someone there to help care for you, at least initially, and you're not being uprooted. We are going to build a bunch of services here. And everyone's like, yeah, sure. But then one of the Hawaiians there, a gentleman named Ko'olau, I can't pronounce Hawaiian words. Um, <laughs> that sounds good. Ko'olau? Yeah. Ko'olau basically said, no, you know, they want to separate us from our families. And this actually was such a big issue that in Hawaii, leprosy is known as the separating sickness. Because family, or as we learned from Lilo and Stitch, ohana is very important <laughs> to Hawaiians. And that is what they said. They didn't call it the disfiguring disease. They called it the separating sickness. So Ko'olau, his wife, and his child were all infected with leprosy, and he did not want them to be separated from the village. So at first, he convinced everybody to say no, and the leprosy victims came and drove law enforcement out to the coast. However, when the sheriff and his men started kind of fighting back, then Ko'olau said he didn't want his people or his fellow villagers to suffer, so he encouraged them all to go to the leper colony to be separated because at least there would be other Hawaiians there. And he took his wife and his child and went hiding out in the mountains for about 20 years, uh, just surviving from things that different people would leave for them and it's really a fascinating story, and if you're interested in learning more, I suggest that you can either listen to the Stuff You Missed in History podcast on the Molokai Rebellion, or there's actually a play all about this, and this Koolau gentleman became a folk hero to Hawaiians for standing up to you know the provincial government and saying, no, you're not going to take us from our homes, you're not going to separate us from our families, and there are songs and plays all about him throughout Hawaii, which I did not know about until beginning to research this. That is a heartwarming story. The only reason we have this story is when Ko'olau finally died, his wife came forward and told the story of living up in the hills and all their lives, what they had had to do in this rebellion, so you actually got to hear it from somebody who was directly involved. So here's my question. People were being separated for fear of spreading leprosy to other people. How infectious is leprosy and how is it transmitted? And what do you think separation or separating these people was a good policy? Did that work? That's a great question, Ward. <laughs> what an awesome Yeah, well, question. here's... And before I let Santosh lead in with that, yeah. we're going to say that part of the reason that this happened is that for years and years, the stigma has been that it is highly infectious, and our natural response to seeing somebody with that is disgust and revulsion. Right. But in Hawaii, because of this, this culture of ohana, they were not afflicted with revulsion, and they would still welcome these people in their communities in open arms. So, of course, when we came over and took over, we're like, ew, look at these backward savages. They don't even know to avoid people with these disgusting lesions. Right. And that's kind of why we were a bit harsh and said, we have to separate them for their own good because they clearly don't know 
what's going on. So, Santosh, infectious yeah. disease us away. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that lovely introduction. So, the epidemiology of leprosy and how it's transmitted really has to do with sanitation and very close contact. And this is not close contact the way we think of with common illnesses like a cold or a flu. And it's funny that we always talk about leprosy and historically how reviled people were. Oh my God, it's so horrible. But, you know, flu killed a lot more people than leprosy ever has. And it's much more communicable. For leprosy to kind of take hold, um, you need to be together in a very close, unsanitary environment for a long period of time. So, yes, husbands and wives, for instance, in very poor, socioeconomically destitute areas would trade leprosy with one another. The children could catch it. If you were older or if you have immunocompromised for any reason, then you could more easily catch leprosy. But, for instance, if you were taking care of these people, either from a healthcare standpoint or if you were a neighbor, your chances of catching leprosy from whoever had it was rather low. So it's by contact, right? It is It is by contact, yeah. So the, the bacillus, this tiny little bacteria, has to pass from person to person by touch. And it does also have to do with the type of leprosy that they have. And I know, Josh, we're going to get into this soon. But if they have a type of leprosy or a manifestation of leprosy where they have a lot of lesions and they're very active, then they're more infectious than someone who has a single patch on their skin. Aside from humans, you can catch leprosy from armadillos. <laughs> and this actually, uh, although it sounds very comical, and it is, this has caused an outbreak of leprosy in areas where armadillos are endemic, such as Texas and the Florida. <laughs> so now instead of remember the Alamo, they're all shouting, remember the armadillo! <laughs> Please remember the armadillo, yes. How do you catch, <laughs> catch leprosy from an armadillo? Santosh already told us that, Ward, by spending intimate, close, personal <laughs> contact with it over a long period of time. As one no. does in Texas and Florida? <laughs> no, no. For, so armadillos are one of these animals that have a, a, a wonderful ability to harbor these bacilli. The reason for that specifically is that the body temperature on the foot pad of the armadillo is low enough for the bacteria to multiply. So unlike a lot of bacteria that we think of which multiply inside of our body, so you know the temperature in our body is around 37 degrees Celsius, maybe up to 38, the, the outside of the body where you know you actually need the temperature to drop down as low as 33 degrees for the bacteria to grow really well and 33 degrees is where you have a lot of thick skin and not a lot of your body heat transmits out to the outside and the best example of that is the foot pad of the armadillo which is 
on the laboratory side, a great place to culture these bacteria if you need to grow them in a lab. So what you're saying is leprosy is not sexually transmitted. It's not highly infectious. Right. But you probably should not be taking your armadillo to bed. Right. <laughs> please, please don't take your armadillo to bed. I think that is a very uh, good plan. Yes. So Texas, remember the armadillo. <laughs> <laughs> And Florida. Florida was one of the places where leprosy had a bit of an outbreak recently. How recently? I believe in the 2010s. We actually do see leprosy here in the United States, and, and most state health programs has a Hansen's disease division. So we, we do have it here. It is here in the United States, but we have these mini outbreaks whenever people uh, touch uh, things like armadillos or if they're living in very uh, isolated, that sounds so horrible, or if they're living in very isolated areas where they are crammed together and one person could catch leprosy and certainly pass it on. So, you know, housing or apartments. Like college dorms or well, college dorms are not as, and nursing homes are cleaned time and time again. I, Santos, have you been to a nursing home? Have you been to a college dorm? Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> Can I just say there was a college dorm at a University of California <laughs> where there was a booger board. I know that sounds bad and it, it really, really does, but honestly, we're talking about places where things are not cleaned at all like zero 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 for years and years and years and the bacteria has time to really fester and grow i stand by ward's college dorm <laughs> booger board problem is leprosy is actually a bit of a mystery experiments with mouse and armadillo models of the disease showed that you can transmit it through lining of the nose and breaks in the skin but it's not through droplets, so it's not via the mouth, it's not via the lungs. You can't transmit it through unbroken skin. And although it can be produced in mice by exposing them to just live bacteria, it can't be transmitted from an infected mouse to an uninfected mouse. So people nowadays are no longer infectious after only two weeks of treatment. We still don't really fully understand how it actually gets from person to person. We just know that close contact and dirty conditions help to spread it once somebody has contracted it. Right. And as for diagnosing it, since we're, we'll talk about diagnosis and then we'll get into what it actually looks like, it's really difficult to diagnose because it is an intracellular bacteria, meaning rather than floating around in your bloodstream independently, it hides in your cells and it has to live inside the cells, and you can't culture it in a laboratory at all, meaning there is not a single laboratory test in a hospital that we can do that will reveal leprosy. It's only diagnosed based on clinical symptoms. And Santoshi had mentioned a bit earlier that all you need is a ballpoint pen. Sure. So do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, so the most common manifestation early on in leprosy where you're trying to differentiate it from anything else is 
just test the affected area with a sharp object. And so, of course, in a place which has a lot of resources, like here in the United States, you want to use something sterile, which you're going to throw away, um, like a... like a Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style needle that you're going to cap and toss but in the field you just need something which is mildly sharp so you can take a ballpoint pen and you say oh there's been an outbreak of leprosy around here lately you just ask the person do you have any areas on your skin which are hyperpigmented or hypopigmented usually the latter so there's less pigment on the skin and they say, so oh, yes, I do. You mean like darker or lighter? Darker or lighter. So you'll see a light patch on the skin. Very easy to tell with Indians. Ha! Huh? And then you you just <laughs> touch that with uh, your ballpoint pen. And, and you help to pinpoint the area <laughs> of infection? Well, if there has been destruction there from the bacteria, then the sensory nerves there will be deadened. So it will feel to them like nothing. So you'll ask them, can you tell if I'm poking with this pen, say on the shoulder or wherever this little patch is? And they'll say, no, I didn't feel that at all. Boom, you've made your diagnosis. (laughs) Around the world, nowadays, only 14 countries have about 95% of existing leprosy cases. Of these, the greatest number, still in India, with about just shy of 60%. And the next largest country is Brazil, with about 14%. And last but not least, Indonesia, with about 8%. Now, this is pretty significant because beginning in the 90s, the WHO set out on a campaign to eliminate and eradicate the disease. And since the beginning of that campaign, which we'll talk about, the prevalence or how how, lepros- how much leprosy you see around the world now has decreased by 90%. So in the 1980s, millions of new cases were being reported. And in 2001, only 760,000 cases were reported. And by 2008, only about 250,000 new cases. So from millions down to a quarter of a million in the span of 15, 20 years is pretty impressive for getting rid of a disease. Right. And this has to do with 
all of the factors that we've talked about so far in that the disease is poorly communicable. It's hard to pass on. It's pretty easily recognized. And once it's contracted, with a couple of exceptions here and there, it moves rather slow. So this isn't one of these things where day one you have leprosy, day two your nose falls off. It is a slowly progressive and in its early phases imminently treatable disease. Santosh, I'm, I'm so glad that you mentioned your nose dropping off because <laughs> are you? why don't we talk a little bit about what leprosy actually looks like. So, of course, when you say oh, somebody has leprosy, the first thing you think of sure. is D- pieces of somebody yeah. yes, pieces of somebody falling off. And in fact, I remember being raised with a... Well, I had a very strange childhood, but I remember being <laughs> you, raised... You were raised with, with a... a song. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. I remember being raised with my father and mother telling me this delightful little ditty that they used to sing in the evening to me, which... <laughs> I, I will, you may have heard it earlier in the episode, and if you didn't, I will add the sound clip now. Okay. But I believe the song goes, Leprosy, you've got the best of me. There goes my eyeball into your highball. Kiss me quick, there goes my upper lip. There goes my right ear into your stale beer. And it kind of went on in that vein for quite a while. <laughs> Jeepers. <laughs> and this is how I fell asleep at night. Oh, how, old were, how old were you at the time? Oh, I don't know. Six, seven. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mom and Dad. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, they, were but, to, they were trying to educate you. Contrary to pop songs and folklore, <laughs> leprosy does not actually cause body parts to fall off. although they can become numb or diseased as a result of secondary infections. So there's actually two different kinds of leprosy. Now, Santosh, you went to a leper colony. Can you tell us what those two different kinds are? Right. So these are the two extremes, and there's actually five uh, kind of intermediates in the middle of them. But at one extreme, you have something called tuberculoid leprosy. And this is what's generally thought of as less severe disease, where you just have a few patches of hypopigmented or, or lighter skin here and there. And this is what happens when your body is actually mounting a decent cellular immune response. And then the other end is called lepromatous leprosy. And this is when you have raised nodular lesions all over your body. And this is a mark of pure immune defense. So you're not warding it off at all. The bacteria are multiplying with absolutely no bounds. In this form, the lepromatous leprosy is where you'll see a lot of the very commonly spoken of stigmata of leprosy. Yeah, so in tuberculoid leprosy, what's actually happening? Well, you have an area of your body that has the infection and all your immune cells kind of rush in and beat the infection (laughs) to a pulp. Stop. Dead in its tracks right there. Yeah, and then they seal it off, and, you know, they just have a bunch of immune cells all around the bacteria saying, move along, nothing to see here, (laughs) 
and that area where the infection was defeated, you raise a tiny little battle mound. And that's a nodule, a very hard nodule called a tubercule that forms in the skin. And in that tubercule, just like any other grave, there's no sense of heat, cold, or touch. Mm-hmm. And this will kind of spread to the main trunk of the nerve, so nerve impulses can't be transmitted. So now you have no loss of sensation, and you may have decreased circulation. So you're not really, it's, in some ways, it's like diabetic nerve pain, where you'll have less sensation, and because you don't feel pain in that area, you'll start getting more injuries to that area, because your body doesn't tell you, hey, pay more attention to this. Right. So you'll get these large ulcers, you can get loss of fingers and toes from the circulation, and occasionally it gets so bad you may even need amputation because there's no blood getting in. So this is, this is commonly how leprosy in the tuberculoid form, how the bacteria will spread, is that say that this patch is somewhere like a heel, so you're not paying attention to it as much, and then it gets injured. Maybe you step on a piece of glass or a, a sharp rock. So the skin around there may actually die and cool, and at that point, the bacteria can spread. But up till that point, it's actually fairly well contained, and if you catch it fast enough, that could be the end of the disease. Now, what's sad and ironic you know, in an Alanis Morissette sense, <laughs> is that this form of leprosy, the tuberculoid, which does cause a lot of loss of limbs and can be very disfiguring, it often occurs in people who have really good resistance to the disease right. because that's what the tubercules are. Right. Um, but it's unsuccessful in that it tends to destroy tissues in any invaded area. Now, the second kind that Santosh was mentioning, lepromatous leprosy, has very, your body can't really mount a defense, so the bacteria run through your skin freely all over the place, and one of their favorite areas to hang out is the face, and it will start to cause thickening of the skin, and people who develop this kind often are said to have a leonine appearance, a leonine appearance, because their face gets wrinkled in the same way that a lion's does. So they get that They'll, thickness over the nose and over the lips, and they'll look like a lion. They'll look like Mufasa. Because this bacteria is particularly good at infecting areas with cartilage, the nose and the ears will get severely infected and erode, and this can lead to destruction of the lips, nose, and ears anywhere with cartilage, and it almost kind of gives them a little bit of a skeletal appearance, and the the ears and nose don't fall off, but get so eroded they look like they've disappeared. Right. Wait, do you guys know which one is the more common and which one is more lethal? Well, lepromatous would be more quickly lethal because it's people who don't have resistance to the disease. Oh, right. So it's just mm-hmm. rampant and full-blown. Yeah. Right. Tuber- tuberculoid is more common, and it's more commonly disfiguring, but it... As Santosh mentioned, it's very slow. The incubation period, or the period between being exposed to the disease and showing signs of it, is three to five years. So a child infected by a parent may not notice anything for years, and that first clue could just be a very vague patch on the skin that is a little bit paler than the surrounding skin, although it could be reddish or copper-colored. And 
this could be it until the child grows to an adult and you've started to notice the nodules, right? You've all woken up with what we call RBIs, random beer injuries. You wake up and you're like, hey, what's this bump? I wonder where it came from. Oh, well, let me go about my life uh-huh. because this isn't bothering me. And when this happens over years and years and suddenly you're like, hmm, apparently I have leprosy. There's more bumps here than I thought. Well, the the worst part, Ward, about the tuberculoid form, in, in, in the lepromatous form, people were kind of outcast in a hurry and they had to run and it was it was a very miserable life. But the tuberculoid form, the reason that that was so insidious is that people would show symptoms very slowly, but in a lot of cultures, they could recognize very quickly what leprosy was, mostly because of the type of songs that Josh listened to. And those were, I'm kidding. Now, it was, it was, Thanks, Mom. it was just talked about a lot. Oh, if you get this and get that. Oh, did you hear that person was diseased? So if people would get these symptoms, sometimes it would just be a light skin patch and they'd notice, oh my God, it's numb here. Or I have bumps and tubercles and, you know, immediately what they would say is, oh, if I go to the doctor and the doctor talks, which was very common because it would be a small village or something like that, or if other people see me going into the doctor, they're going to know I'm sick and I'm going to be outcast. And so even though in the lepromatous form, you would kind of be pushed to go seek treatment because you were sick in a hurry, in the tuberculoid form, you just incubate this for a long time and refused to go because of the stigma that went along with receiving treatment for leprosy. So you would just rather risk it. And in that manner, tuberculoid form was a lot more communicable as well than the lepromatous form. Yeah. Well, back in the days, there were not that many effective forms of treatment, right? Well, it it's true you know antibiotics you know you got to think about the 1940s right world war 2 but some of the first antibacterials that were around which were sulfonamides and sulfur containing drugs actually santosh yeah. even earlier than that oh yeah because remember this has been going on since at least the at biblical times sure and, sure you know if we're looking in more of the modern era the 1800s oh. so the very first treatment okay okay was oil from derived from seeds of a tree the chaul mugra tree nice and that was used to treat leprosy and other skin conditions in both india and china so this this chaul mugra oil is part of both ayurvedic as well as traditional Chinese medicine. And it was the only real treatment available until around the 1890s. And the reason it was thought is, are, are you familiar with the concept that whatever the plant looks like, that's what condition it Right, right. And we discussed this a little bit when you guys talked about the syphilis tree in Africa. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the seeds of this tree are distinctive because they have vascular bundles very clearly visible on their surfaces Ugh. which was felt to look like people who who had a lot of these tubercules <laughs> okay so originally people would have this oil and this was part of the traditional chinese medicine now i couldn't find a lot about how it was treated there but the problem is once this was studied by a us physician okay we found out that 
the, the oil from these seeds is completely ineffective when spread on the skin. So to just <laughs> rub it on, to just rub it on would do nothing. Okay. It is, it has some effect when ingested orally, but it also has a side effect of severe nausea. So even if you took it by mouth, you couldn't really keep it down. And it is apparently quite painful to inject. Oh dear. So this ended up being the only treatment available and it wasn't really a good one. Sure. Now, in 1920, the very first, uh, the U.S. Public Health Service established the Continental Nation's first leprosarium. Remember, we talked about Hawaii. It was present in Kalupapa in the mm -hmm. 1890s. Okay. But the first one in the Continental U.S. was in the 1920s in Carville, Louisiana. And it was meant to be both an institution and asylum for people with leprosy, as well as a hospital so in which to try experiments and a laboratory to study the organism. All right. Now, this, these studies took place all the way until 1941, World War II, and that's where you start talking about the, the treatment, Santosh. That was the discovery of Promin, a sulfone drug, was shown to successfully cure the disease, after a series of multiple painful injections. Right. <laughs> and this was known as the Miracle of Carville. Right. And then in, we got a little bit better at producing sulfonamides. And in the 1950s, also produced at Carville, you got Dapsone pills produced by Dr. Cochran at Carville. Wow. That so do you know why, why, sulfur, why sulfur has this effect? Why it kills these these drugs? Well, sure. why it kills these bacteria? Yeah, so sulfonamides and sulfur-containing drugs are quite toxic to a number of bacteria, and you know, one of our most popular antibiotics nowadays is Bactrim, trimethoprim sulfa, which is used all the time. So a lot of these sulfur-containing drugs attack the folate synthesis, uh, synthesis pathway in bacteria. And I believe that's how it attacks the TB as well, or uh, the leprosy. Right, because since these bacteria of leprosy live inside your cells, if you disrupt the cell's ability to make folate, which is you know a vitamin B for those of you who take your daily vitamins, <laughs> then bacteria need their vitamins too. And without it, they die. Right. Unfortunately, just like in the 1950s as today, we had problems with drug resistance. And Dapsone as a treatment alone really stopped being effective after a couple years until we found out you could add a second drug and begin multi-drug treatments. And that's what we use today. Uh, you give a daily Dapsone along with a monthly rifampin, and this is given for about six months for standard cases and up to a year for severe cases of leprosy. Now, people stop being contagious after about two weeks. You know, after the first monthly dose, they pretty much can go back to living their regular lives, don't have to be separated, nobody has to be in leper colonies anymore. <laughs> right. And it's a very safe and easy to use drug, especially when it's monitored being taken. 
how much do you suppose this miracle cure costs? <laughs> well, okay, so if Dapsone were invented in the 1950s, patents probably ran out. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, These are both very old drugs, right. extremely and, old drugs. And it seems like the combination therapy is Dapsone and Rifampin, right? And that is that is a drug older than... Oh no! Is it rifamycin? Rifamycin. You you uh, can actually use a, a few of the rifamycins, but in this country, rifampin is the most commonly used one. That is a drug older than I am, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna guess that they are inexpensive to produce. Well, if it's done through the public health, I think right now it's close to free. Yeah. So production to the patient, I can't answer, but you're right. It's it's pretty much free. Because beginning in 1995, the World Health Organization, with surprisingly the aid of Japan's Nippon Foundation, just supplied all endemic countries or countries where the disease just naturally existed with free multi-drug treatment in calendar blister packs. And what's a calendar pack? You can think of it as those little birth control rings. You punch out the pill every day, yeah. you take it, <laughs> and when the package is empty, you finish the course. That's it. Every country that had leprosy running rampant with free multi-drug treatment, and it was provided through the government's Ministry of Health, this ended in 2000 and was renewed, so they got it free again all the way up to 2005, and that was with help from donations from the manufacturer Novartis, and the latest agreement signed between this drug company and the World Health Organization was in 2010, and that gives free rifampin and dapsone to all countries until the end of 2015. So pretty much as long as your government is not so horribly corrupt that it refuses to give these out, you can be treated for leprosy for free. So why India still has such a huge number of the world's leper population is a bit of a mystery to me. <laughs> no, the the truth of the matter is is you're you're trying to get to the last few people who still hold on to stigma and that kind of a thing and you're trying to root out those last groups of people who do not believe in seeking treatment for this. The other obstacles are places which are exceedingly hard to get to, like up in the mountains or in the thick of the jungle. Can I just say that leprosy is, that's kind of a disease as old as time, right? Its cousin tuberculosis, which is it's closely related to, mm-hmm. also a disease almost as old as time. Right. And it kind of, it kind of gets at the very fabric of, I don't know, human societies, right? Because Tuberculosis, we also used to have colonies of tuberculosis colonies where we separate and segregate people into, you know, these these groups where they have this condition. So they have to be they have to be protected as well as the rest of the people have to be protected from them. Right. In fact, in the United States, TB, I think the last TB colonies have been. I know somebody whose mother actually was sent to a TB colony slash camp. Right. Here in the United States on the eastern uh, on the eastern seaboard. Yeah, you're and talking it, about the 1950s. Absolutely. Yeah. And the way it works is it is a sense of community and identity. It's weird. It's like if you're in that leper colony, 
you belong to a community of all of its own with its own rules and own expectations. Um, and it's weird that, that, you know, that person told me that, that his mother felt like while she was in this TV colony, she was, she felt more like part of the community than when she was, um, when she was back in her own, back in her own life. Yeah. And I'm sure those are some of the barriers to getting to that last pocket of, um, of people who are afflicted with leprosy. It's, it is a lot of it. It is the social stigma. Mm hmm. Oh yeah. The quarantine next door. door. (laughs) Exactly. It is. It totally is. (laughs) And, Interestingly enough, one of the other things I learned researching this, now you guys know we've, we've promoted Radiolab a lot on this show, and I'm hoping if I say it enough, one day Jad or Robert will listen to us <laughs> and, and give a little bit of love back. But on an episode of Radiolab called No Place Like Home, they talk about a gentleman who was sentenced to minimum security prison in Carville, Louisiana. And this is at the time that it was still a leper colony. So you had convicts and lepers hanging out, living side by side. And it was actually, it's a fascinating story. And I encourage anyone who is interested in learning more about the human side of leprosy to listen to both No Place Like Home on either Snap Judgment or Radio Lab and to listen to... Koalau and the Molokai Rebellion on Stuff You Missed in History Class. And we've covered both of those here about real cases of people still living with leprosy and how it affected people. Because even though it's an ancient disease, it's still around today. And that in and of itself makes it pretty darn fascinating and an excellent place to start as we move around the world in 80 plagues. (laughs) Plague one down. Plague one. Check. 79 to go. We <laughs> we set our heart, hot, hot air balloon down in India, and now we... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be back here many times. Yeah, I think many, we are going to come back to India times. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get a multi uh, visa. Yeah, I, I love my homeland. I really, really do. But so many diseases. <laughs> Yeah. Do do any of you have a just the tip? We haven't done that for a while. <laughs> I I can actually yeah, uh, wrap it up. I know I started it off, but I can also wrap it up with another stop on you know on the Himalayan Health Exchange tour. Give us a tip. Okay, yeah. take us home, Santo. <laughs> so at the tail end of coming out of the Himalayas, we came down to a valley called Monali Valley. And this is a beautiful area in northern India, nestled in the mountains. And Manali Valley has been turned into a tourist spot with the temples and all of the sacred places there side by side with amazing little tiny restaurants and spas. So the way you get up to Manali Valley is you... Take a bus, essentially. I don't even think they have a airstrip. But you, you want to look for Kulu Manali, K-U-L-L-U space Manali, M-A-N-A-L-I. 
please, please don't buy saffron from the little children running around claiming to have authentic Indian saffron. Most of the time, you're just going to get red-dyed cotton thread. Manali was one of these places where uh, a bunch of hippies moved to India and said, let's just live here. (laughs) So you're going to see right next to the amazing Himalayan food restaurant or the Tibetan food restaurant run by Tibetan people, just white people serving all manner of dishes. Marijuana grows wild <laughs> in this valley. It's it's not regulated or anything. It grows literally like a weed everywhere. However, the laws in India, and especially up and around there, are absolutely draconian. And if you get caught with anything, you can be put in jail just awaiting trial for up to six months. So don't do it. Manali Trust Valley. me, the last place you want to spend six months against your will is in India. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, Manali, the, the, the town of Manali and uh, Kulu Manali in the, in the state of Hamachal Pradesh in India. Now, is that on the way from the Himalayas down to, I don't know, any, any of the major tourist destinations? This is at the foothills of the Himalayas. So if you would like to see India, but are more comfortable with white people than Indians, <laughs> go check out the valley. <laughs> you can, you can. Yeah, this is this is all the way up north. It is, it is absolutely beautiful, very peaceful. It is a tourist spot for many Indians as well, too. So in, That sounds uh, lovely. That's like Fremont in India. It... <laughs> <laughs> So that concludes this week's episode. Join us next time for another journal club or maybe another plague. Who knows? Certainly not me because I haven't bothered to write show notes yet. (laughs) As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Please leave us any comments, questions, or concerns. On Twitter, I'm at Dr. J Comedy. Santosh is at Toshi Fro. Ward is at Travel and Medicine. You can also visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Travel Medicine Podcast. Our music is composed by Rachel Leisure. Thanks so much for joining us so far, you guys. We're having a fantastic time oh, yeah. with doing this. Yay. We really are. We love you fans. And please keep, as always, visiting the CDC. And in this case, also visit the National Hansen's Disease Project, the NHDP, and you can learn all about Hansen's disease. And visit your local library, because you should. But and after that, b- before you visit the local library, rate us on iTunes. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Send us some uh, feedback. Negative. Yeah, or rate us on iTunes at your local library. Because that's how other people find us and how we keep the show going. And until next time, guys, as always, happy travels. Bye. Travels. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.